This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Welcome to Home and Away on the No Ceilings NBA podcast feed. Thank you so much for joining us. As you would know, this is our episode where we at No Ceilings decide to, as much and as often as we can, have on someone who is outside of the No Ceilings NBA Collective, a.k.a. a very special guest, to join us for these episodes to get outside and, and really different perspectives on what's going on in the NBA draft, what's going on in the NBA and basketball in general, the business side, whatever we feel like talking about at Home and Away. That's that's what we do. So joining me on this very special episode is a guy who it, it's really fun when I get to record with him because I feel like we came into the podcast space together and we've talked about that on multiple episodes, whether it be on the draft deeper feed or on Chuck's feed, a.k.a. Chucking Darts. Right. We've discussed this. We, we came into the industry together and we really feel like it's, it's kind of like a, a ritual of sorts to get together every single draft cycle we talk about some some guys that that Chuck finds interesting, some guys that I find interesting. And at the end of the day, Chuck, to, to intro you, it becomes like a therapy session of sorts, right? We, we get to discuss these prospects and really air everything out. And we, we come away learning more about these guys ourselves, as well as hopefully the audience. I, I would hope the audience learns something very insightful when you and I get together, but how you doing, buddy? I, I'm doing well, man. I I agree. I when I uh, speak with you, the safe the the space feels very safe, which is very very yes. nice. But given who we're going to talk about uh, today, it feels like I a lot of people need some th- therapy, some <laughs> ventilation, like a nice sort of meditative uh, you know, hour or so. And hopefully that's what this is. Cause I mean, the, the stuff I, we, I guess scheduled this episode like a, two weeks ago or something yep. like that. And since then there's been a lot of steam, uh, on the guys we're discussing. So yeah, quite, I'm quite looking literally. forward to it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It was, it was perfect timing by us, but, but it's okay. Yeah, we're, we're going to vent this out. And, and I do want to take one of your taglines before we get into these guys it's okay to be wrong about sports, right? That's what you say all the time. And it's okay to have different takes and opinions about all of these guys, but you and I are going to dive in and and we chose five names, or should I say you chose five names you really want to discuss on this podcast. I'm sure I will be doing the same on chucking darts eventually in this draft cycle, but you pick some guards that you want to talk Mm -hmm. about, which is that that was perfectly fine by me. Corey Tulliba also hosted a home and away episode where he had Raphael Barlow on and he talked about, some of the wings in this class Mm -hmm. of Raphael. So it's only fitting that we tackle some of the guards. So there's no other way to start when I, when I talk about the position guard, than to begin with the name Scoot Henderson out of the G league ignite. One of the most divisive prospects on 
the interwebs of late. That's, that's exactly what Chuck was alluding to, because we all knew we all know who's going to go number one in the NBA draft in the 2023 draft. It's going to be Victor Wembanyama. There, there's there's no other way around it at this point. And leading up to about a week and a half ago, Chuck, we thought number two was going to be Scoot Henderson, right? And, and we kind of mm-hmm. thought the draft started at three. And then there's this notion that's been put out there that's like, well, maybe we should have more of a discussion around who, who's actually going to be in the conversation for the number two overall pick. In other words, it should be more of an open dialogue, not just a, a closed shut case in terms of, yeah, it's Scoot. We're not going to talk about this. We're going to move on to number three. But it is important to me to really want to dive into his game. And as I talked about with Chuck before we started recording this podcast, the five names we're going to discuss, we didn't talk about these guys beforehand. So I actually don't have a clue where Chuck sits on the Scoot Henderson uh, perspective, where he sits on the the number two, number three discussion with Brandon Miller's the guy who's being talked about for number two in with Scoot. So there's a lot that I'm sure we're going to unpack with just this one player alone, Chuck, but just, kick it off. Where are you at with Scoot Henderson? What are you confident in? Where do you have questions? Let's, let's, let's just get it going. Uh, yeah, I think first of all, I gotta, is Scoot really divisive? Is he really like, is it that divisive for a lot of people to have him number two and a lot of people to have him number three? I, I don't, maybe someone has him four. I, that's what is, uh, notable to me over the last week or so with this. Cause I think that scrutiny is good. Yeah. I think if someone wanted to make a case for someone else at number one, that's at least as good to have the conversation. It just, it, if the conversation goes the way that we think conversation should go, you just arrive back at the same conclusion that it should be Victor Wembanyama, And you're a bit more confident because you've talked it out. I mean, that is what, draft evaluation and this space and the community should be is that you just Mm -hmm. talk things out. And as far as scoot goes, uh, I think, you know, a lot of the discussion about whether or not he's going number two or whether or not he should go number two, uh, is an archetype discussion, which is really, you know, the more things change, the more they stay the same. Scoot is a six foot two, six foot three guard. Brandon Miller is a plus sized wing. Brandon Miller is an excellent, excellent, excellent uh, catch-and-shoot shooter. I mean, he can also shoot off the dribble, but he can space and fit into an offense very well. Scoot needs an offense to fit around him. So these are discussions that have been had over every draft cycle probably for the last, you know, four or five years. And I just, I think it's appropriate to have the discussion. That's all. And if I, I know that there are people very confident on both sides of the ledger. There are people who confidently believe that you go with the plus size wing, who's gotten better mm-hmm. over the course of the season, who can play off the dribble, who's an elite shooter. Um, and there are people who are confident that Scoot is just that rare of an all around lead guard prospect. And he's so creative with the ball in his hands that you go with that. And frankly, as someone who has a podcast, I wish I could be as confident as either one of those camps, but I'm not. So that's what that's what this is partially for. I chose these names because they confuse me a little bit. Oh, come so, on. Well, this is the perfect space to talk it out, my friend. Safe space. Right. So as far as what I love about Scoot, I think I love what everyone loves about him, what makes him a, a top mm-hmm. of the lotto pick. Um, which is his ability to 
not only run an offense, which he's been doing at the at the G League Ignite level now full time as you know, he was a bench player last year as a 17 year old. But uh, he just has an advanced understanding of the game and he's an excellent, excellent guard athlete uh, at a very young age. And I, I think that any critique about his actual skill set should start with what makes him very special within his skill set. That's where I want to start with Scoot. And yeah. to me, what makes Scoot really, really, really special um, is his athleticism and how he weaponizes it on his drives. Yep. Okay. So I am a firm believer in valuing players who project to score efficiently at the NBA level. And everyone who does draft evaluation has sort of either their explicit or their implicit characteristics that they really, really, really value. Some people really like off the dribble creativity. Some people really like uh, playmaking vision. Some people like two way feel for the game. Um, some people just like shooting form and shooting mechanics. But for me, it's just, do you project to score efficiently at the NBA level? There is not a star in the league that does not score very efficiently. That's what stars are. So with Scoot, there's a question about his jumper, right? Because sure. he he shoots low to mid-30s on threes, uh, a deeper line in the G League than in college, yep. and he shoots like mid-70s from the line. It's not terrible, but it's sort of unremarkable. Mm -hmm. um, but there are many different ways to score efficiently, and what Scoot is going to do most efficiently at the NBA level is drive and finish because he, first of all, everyone can you know, go wild over the fact that he's like, his physique is so incredible at such a young age. He looks like he's 27 years old and been in the league for <laughs> six years. That's great. Uh, and, you know, awesome. But it's the way he can use his tools on his drive, his feel on drives really in three areas stick out so much to me relative to other draft classes not just other draft sure. prospects in this class that uh i feel very safe in projecting him being of an extremely efficient scorer at the nba level one is his handle yep. which he's that has been there basically since last year at, at the ignite and carried over into this year starting with those exhibitions against Wembenyama's team metropolitan's 92 mm -hmm. um very very tight handle can very polished with either hand knows how to set defenders up off the bounce uh, knows how to sell moves with his body in sync with his handle. We'll get to some other guys in this episode who I think really struggle in that area, yep. but uh, scoot does not. So handles number one, number two uh, is his gather. I think that scoots gather is the, best that I have seen since I started doing draft stuff, which is only three years, but it's sure. still notable. If you're the best at something in three draft classes, then that's very good. Scoot knows how to, and he has the, the facility, the dexterity with his hands to gather the ball almost exclusively when his defender is off balance. He will sell a dribble move and bring it into a handle all in one motion without carrying the ball and it 
becomes a genuine weapon for most guards, for most players, the gather is something you do out of necessity because you're driving to the hoop and your defender has basically cut off your dribble or you're getting very close to the hoop and you've got to go up and like, that's just the next thing you do. Scoot uses that as a, as an offensive tool to, to set his defender off balance in very, very special ways. And for a shorter player, it's extremely important because it creates easy finishing angles for him. So in the same way that a lot of people um, admire Kyrie Irving's creativity that he puts on his finishes, and he is very creative at doing that, I think Scoot is equally as creative or nearly as creative in how he creates angles for himself. Mm-hmm. And the third area that he uh, is extremely special into me is his last step. Now, I think Scoot has a very good first step, but his last step is something like when you when you watch him and you see his highlights and you're like, this just doesn't look familiar. Like, I can't, I can't, there's just something different about how he attacks. That sort of feeling that seeps into your head that like he just moves differently or he mm-hmm. just has command of the game a little bit differently. Um to me, that feeling is connected to what he can do on his last step. It's become very in fashion in the NBA over the last five years uh, to weaponize deceleration. You know, that's Luka Doncic, that's SGA, uh, you know, manipulating the timing of your defender by being so on balance that you can slow down, watch them go by you or put them on their back foot. And then you have an angle to do that. Not only can Scoot, decelerate in that manner very, very effectively creating those angles. Mm -hmm. And again, syncing it with that gather, but he can explode off his last step into a dunk, like off one foot at six, two or six, three, and he can decelerate into a one foot dunk. That's Mm -hmm. the thing that he does so well that just like messes with me. Like, there are some people in the NBA who can do that. Like Anthony Edwards can do it. Like really, really top, top athletes and wings can do it, but they, they rely on their length to finish those plays because they're, mm-hmm. they're bigger players and you know, it's just a shorter distance to the hoop. But Scoot is the only guard I really know of that does it so consistently and makes it look so easy. And if you're looking for, what does the efficient scoring profile look like? I think once Scoot is in an offense that is legitimately NBA spaced, because if there's yep. one thing the Ignite is a team struggle with, it's shooting this year. <laughs> They've got. Yeah, I mean, Le- Le- Leonard doesn't shoot. The, the bigs really don't shoot. CDs yeah. really only come on like the last month and a half from the perimeter. Like, yeah. Yeah. And defenses don't really treat CD as a shooter. Jenkins right. is really their only guy who shoots. Yep. And so. Because they, they you know, defenses can afford to pack the paint against Scoot, they do. But in the NBA, 30 of 30 teams, that will not be the case. There's just too much shooting talent in the league. So once that space opens up to him and he can use those three tools, handle, uh, gather, last step, reliably getting downhill and having a true big setting screens for him because – even though I, I do like Leonard as a prospect and he tries, he 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 is not on time with his screens. He doesn't set them regularly. Mm-hmm. Um, 
I just think you will see the game look very easy for Scoot very quickly. And that's, I, I'm not ignoring the jumper as a concern because it, it is, but. Are but, you really that concerned with the jumper though? See, uh, I, yeah. I, I'm oh, actually not. Go for it. Go for um, it. Yeah. The, the, the reason why I'm not is I, I, if you want to try and point out a few mechanical flaws or point out maybe some timing in terms of when he's getting up and, and getting himself in the motion and how he's getting up. So like, fine. If you want to point out those things, that's okay. But what I look for in, in a shooter who is going to take a lot of the types of shots that he is, is the confidence to do that first and foremost, right? Mm-hmm. Scoot is a confident shooter from all three levels, pulling up from three-point range, catching and shooting from three-point range, taking those one, two dribble pull-ups inside the arc. He has the confidence to take those shots. He's not afraid to. That comfort level, that confidence, those are all things that feed into my evaluation on his jumper. But I'm really not too afraid of his jumper mechanically, to be honest. And I think the other thing that feeds into why I think he's going to succeed in that regard, and it goes back to a lot of what you articulated, Chuck, is he gets to his spots so easily. It's ridiculous how easy he gets to his. It's it's ridiculous how easy he gets to a mid-range pull-up. Right. Mm-hmm. So I think the the ease of how he gets into those shots, the willingness and the confidence to take those shots, I think he's only going to continue to get better because he's 19 years old. Right. That what what is he going to look like on those shots when he's 22, 23? I bet you he's knocking down a higher percentage of those mid-range looks, especially when he already lives in the mid-range as it is, and he's only going to keep getting better on them as you know, as he progresses through the NBA. If 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 he doesn't ever become like a lights out catch and shoot three-point guy, like yeah, that's a concern, especially if he plays with another ball-dominant guard in the backcourt, but you're also projecting Scoot to have the ball in his hand. So for everything that he does well, and we can talk about the passing, the playmaking, the defense, we can throw all of those different things in there. I think I'm willing to live with some of the mixed results from three because I buy the mid-range coming around much more. Yeah, I think we're all like willing to live with the mixed results. And I agree with you that I think he's going to get much better um, in the mid-range because even though he is willing to shoot threes, he likes the mid-range the most. Yes. And I think this is something that I've, I feel like I've learned and it might seem like an obvious point, but I, I like restating obvious points because in draft eval, especially in the dog days of draft eval, you know, you can lose the forest for the trees very quickly. <laughs> um, players tend to do, in the NBA, what they have already defaulted to doing as Mm -hmm. prospects, because the NBA is such a high skill league that in order to survive, number one, and then thrive, number two, you need to basically be great at something. And what are you going to be great at other than what you like doing the most and what you are most naturally talented at going into the league? Very rare to see a prospect completely reshape their game. Um, So especially one drafted high because ones who drafted are drafted high already have these areas that are really uh, like good in their game. And so they're going to lean into the stuff they're already really good at to try to become great at it. And to me, Scoot has obviously the the driving tools to get to the mid-range regularly. And so if he's not going to try to really finish a play and he wants to take a jumper, that shot's going to be available to him. And it's going to be available to him because defenses concede that shot across the league. 
So he will have every opportunity to like feed on his mid range game. And I think his shot is better suited to the mid range because his release is like kind of low, not, not awful, not radical, not doesn't get you out of your seat with how low it is, but it's, it's not, you know, up over his head and he's a shorter guy anyway. So I, I think he also relies more so on, getting himself up into his shot off the bounce. I think he's much mm-hmm. more comfortable when he can get there off the one, two dribble. And then because he has such a high elevation on his shot, he kind of balances himself in the air and then gets himself set in, in midair to be able to shoot it versus off the catch. He's not able to get that same elevation. It's a much quicker release by default. And, you know, then, then you can default to some bad habits as, as any shooter can. So he's just one of those guys that's much better suited off the dribble. Yeah, I agree with that. And I think, defenses are going to go under on screens just like yep. they've done with Ja or they've done with De'Aaron Fox or other extremely athletic point guard prospects with sort of iffy-ish jumpers coming into the league and they're going to try to concede all that. I agree that um, Scoot will take those shots and he will train himself up on those shots. He certainly has the, the like the balance and the core strength to hit those shots when they are conceded to him. Yep. Um, which is why I'm not like not ultimately concerned about it, but just every player has a shot diet. And when I think about whether or not Scoot is sort of the no brainer number two pick in the draft, it's about what will that shot diet look like? Mm-hmm. Is Scoot going to draw tons and tons and tons of free throws with his driving tools? Is he going to settle a whole lot in the mid range? Because I still think that threes though they'll be part of it is not going to be what he likes to do because he's scoots also an exceptionally smart kid and he knows that defenses want him to shoot threes and it's just sort of the geometry of the game and so like case in point in his last 13 games uh he has not taken more than four threes in one game four threes isn't nothing but if you're on the ball all game and they're conceding it to you then you would like to see that number be a little higher. And this is, you know, G League quarters where right. they're, you know, the game's a little longer than college has. So well, that plays into why some people are concerned over the last yeah. month of play, because since February 23rd, he's only had two games with an effective field goal percentage above 43%. So you mentioned the shot diet split. He's not living from three. So that means he's doing a lot of his damage inside the arc. And if he's not making those shots, then all of a sudden people get concerned. Um, yeah. And that's fine. I think yeah. that's okay. I think it's it okay, okay to be concerned, you know? Like, think about, I don't know, the best um, guard initiators. Not like, like Luke is a guard, but he's a wing size guard. I mean, guards, guard initiators in the league. So you'd have, I don't know, Fox is playing really well this year, but you have Dame, uh, you have oh, Trey, Ja, you know, all these guys kind of they kind of all get it done in different ways but the ones who tend to be the most most efficient scorers are the ones who can weaponize the three I mean that's just Mm -hmm. how how it goes so I look at Scoot and I see even though I think that he's going to draw plenty of free throws that'll be part of his game because he absorbs and seeks contact very well and he deals punishment by the way when he gets that contact right 
Which is a difference between him and Amen Thompson. We're not discussing Amen in this episode, mm-hmm. but Amen, when he gets, though he can dish out some contact, when he gets to the hoop, he is an acrobatic, avoidant yes. kind of finisher. Yep. And well, that's we a hard to talk about an avoidant finisher at some point in this podcast. But we, yeah, well, yeah, we are. <laughs> but it's it's that's just a hard way to make a living, man. Like is. Kyrie is is rare. So it's it's a hard thing to do. So Scoot's not that, which is good. He'll be very sound around the rim. He'll be, I think, pretty sound from the mid range, and I think he'll make enough threes to cross a certain threshold. But the question is, what's that threshold? Is that threshold um, three-time All-Star? Like, I think De'Aaron Fox is an All-Star this year. He might be All-NBA this year. I think it's the first time he's gotten both designations. Mm -hmm. Um, You could see with his partnership with Sabonis, him getting a couple more of those selections in the future. De'Aaron Fox is also drafted in the 2017 draft and had plenty of people like really down on him by now thinking he was overpaid on a bad contract and it's taken a while. There was never a question about Darren Fox's uh, character or his sort of drive or his work ethic or anything like that. It's just, and just like there isn't anything with scoot. It just, if you don't have that really, really special shooting from three, it tends to take a little longer. I think, Ja is a bit of an exception to that, but Ja was also an 80% foul shooter both years at Murray State. So he was, the issue was more with Ja's shot form than its results coming into the league. Um, And I also think Ja was a, you know, no one finishes quite like Ja. The way he can detonate off the ground is he's the tippy top of the league. Sure. So I can see a a world where Scoot um, gets drafted, a lot's expected of him because he has all this hype and he's so polished and so advanced, but you don't see results until like real all-star top 10 guard in the league results until like year four, just because like the competition's really hard. Yeah. And because the team is going to revolve around him, much the way the Kings revolved around Fox for years, um, th- it's just going to require patience. That doesn't mean he won't end up the second best player in the draft. I think if you were to go back to 2017, you know, a draft is looking very interesting in retrospect, but you have Tatum, Donovan Mitchell, Bam, Fox, and Laurie Markin into the top of it now. And, you know, I don't know. Like, it's it's different because Fox didn't have the same level of hype as Scoot. You know, Scoot's probably had the most hype of an American-born guard since, I don't know, like like Kyrie. I, I'm guessing, but I think if he if he settles into somewhere between the second and fourth or fifth best player in the draft, that is a success. Yes. The, the only issue is not about Scoot. I think Scoot is an incredibly safe prospect who's going to have a lot of success in the league. It's about who, number one, what is the team context he's going into and is he going to have to split with another initiator. Cause that's, you know, there's not just many voids of point guard in the league. And number two, um, who are you passing up to take him? That's really the draft question. It's not so much who you take as it is who you pass up. So that's where you get into the Miller part of it. I don't know how deep you want to go into that, but that that's more. No, the question. I, I actually, I actually did want to go there. 
with you because I know you're you, as much as you like to talk about the draft and, and that's the jam that you always come back to on your podcast feed. You do a lot of NBA content. You do a lot of great NBA content. So you're very in tune with who's excelling in the league, who, who needs some help. So I did want to go into that because I think when, when you bring up guards like De'Aaron Fox and then you go back and you evaluate some of these guys in the draft, to me, the difference between the John Morants and the John Walls and somebody like a De'Aaron Fox is they have those heightened playmaking instincts that mm. I feel Scoot has. And I think Scoot's playmaking instincts are very advanced for somebody his age. There, There is very little that, that I truly believe he can't do on the basketball court from a playmaking perspective. And I think that puts him in a different class of, of guard prospect. I think that, to me, is the bigger separator, even more than some of the individual shooting, the individual scoring. But to take advantage of that playmaking... To your point, Chuck, he has to have the ball in his hands. And if mm -hmm. he's splitting time with another guard or another lead ball handler, you're not going to be able to take more advantage of that. You're going to have to lean on more of the individual scoring output. And if he's not shooting at a high enough level, you know, that that becomes a little murky. So I understand where people want to go with the Scoot versus Brandon Miller conversation. And by mm -hmm. the way, I'm not, I'm not opposed to anyone who would have Brandon Miller number two on their board. I, I would put it out there that it's my belief. I think if you have Brandon Miller number two on your board, number one, you would believe that he has a legitimate, legitimately high all-star type ceiling. Number oh, two. Yeah. yeah, you'd have to. Yeah, You do think that he is a better prospect than Scoot Henderson to a certain extent. I think the fit thing has been a tad bit overblown. And I just, I want to unpack that with you for a second. Because mm -hmm. I want to go through the teams who are in the lottery mix right now, and I want to I want to narrow down the teams who you truly believe should not take Scoot under any circumstances. So oh, I'm not going to say there's none that are under <laughs> any circumstance. I mean that's ridiculous. But yeah, go 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 ahead, go ahead. So so the, the Detroit Pistons have the top odds. So they obviously have Cade Cunningham and Jay Ivey mm -hmm. in the backcourt, right? Mm -hmm. Why can't Cade Cunningham play the three? And you play all three of those guys together. Why, he in your can. opinion, do you, or do you think that you, you think that can work? Oh yeah, I'd love because I do too. Yeah. Oh, be oh great. god, I, I I didn't know if you were going to oppose that or not. That seems to be a hot thing on Twitter. Is like, why would the Pistons <laughs> necessarily move away from doing that? Yeah. I, I, listen, I, I think if you have three guys who can all handle the ball at, at a high level and who can all command the next amount of the usage why wouldn't you want to have those three guys on the floor? Because that just creates such a conundrum for the opposing defense. Like how, how are you actually going to game plan against all three of those guys? If they can all do what they can. And then you have two of those guys in Ivy and scoot who are so explosive, who, who can put so much pressure on the rim. Like if you have Cade and, and two other decent shooters around them, like I, I just, I don't know how you adequately defend that to a certain extent. Yeah. I think the, you know, it just with, guards you just have to think a little harder that's that doesn't mean it's the wrong decision you just have to think a little harder so in Detroit my concerns would be more defensive than they would be offensive sure. um yes one of Ivy and Scoot would have to be um like to me you give the ball to Scoot you don't draft him at two to not give him the ball and Cade is coming off injury and yeah. can space so you leverage his shooting. You give Scoot the ball. Ivy plays off, but Ivy has already said, you know, he said when he was coming into the draft, he's like, I've never been a point guard. I like it. That's never been my game growing up. And so 
you know, would it require some more like, I guess, creativity than yes. just sort of your regular sets? Yeah. I mean, probably, but when you get downhill as well as those two guys do, I mean, you just get a, get a center like Jalen Duran who can run DHO and you're, you're going to be just fine. So I, th- that's not my concern. The concern is more if you play so many guards or part of me, if you play guards, so many minutes, guys who are under six, five and mm-hmm. under six, six, um, how are you going to defend just sort of the bigger wingier teams? And sure. it, you, it can, you can do it, but you need to have, like absolutely bar none and all defense um, player in the front court. You just do. That's the way the Cavs get it done is they, they have Evan Mobley and Jared Allen who are, you know, probably two all defense worthy players in their front court. So like it, it forces another choice, but as long as you know what you then need, you can do it. So the, the wing thing, I, you know, if they were to if Detroit were to take Brandon Miller, for example, they could tell themselves like, oh, now we have all this versatility because we can play mm-hmm. him and Cade off of Ivy. And that's really great. And it would be good. There is a certain amount of two way value there. But playing Brandon Miller doesn't necessarily mean that you are more likely in three or four years to like be beating a team in round two or round three of a playoff series because wings will play wings and one group wins and one group loses. Like I just, I think that you it's, it's more about finding the the tippy top skills than it is finding an archetype. That's that, that's more the thing to me. Can I, can I also, can I also throw out there that, it's it might not be too crazy if Scoot Henderson ends up being the best player out of Cade Ivy and, and Scoot Henderson. Is that too crazy of a take to throw out there? Because I I don't think it is. No, not at so, all. Not not crazy at all. Okay. I I am a huge Ivy guy. Always have been. I had him third sure. in that draft last year. So I, like I I and I think the fact that you know he's going to be second team all rookie probably. Maybe he'll be like the last first teamer. Um. And he's playing for a bad team. I get it, but he's putting up like 15, five and five, like pretty regularly now, not super efficiently, but 15, five and five for a, a self-identifying non-point guard is just nothing to ignore. So I'll just leave it there. The Houston Rockets, they have Kevin Porter Jr. and Ty Ty Washington. You're, you're, you're going to take Scoot. You're, you're, you're absolutely going to take Scoot. The San Antonio yeah. Spurs, Trey Jones, Devontae Graham, Blake Wesley. Any of those guys stopping Scoot from coming on the team? No. Nope. Charlotte is interesting because they have LaMelo mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. they still have Terry Rozier. And then you have Smith and Maladon as the, the backups behind it. That, that gets a little interesting. I still think Scoot and LaMelo ball could coexist. I really do. It just get it gets trickier to your point. I think it could work. Yeah, it could. Um, That's one of the I, two I, teams on this list that I'm like, I can yeah. see them talking themselves into Brandon Miller. It could work. I think the the idea about taking Scoot for that team is like I this might sound cynical, but I would have in my mind that like I would be trading LaMelo within a couple of years. I don't think that's a long term pairing. Sure. 
Not because they won't want to make it work. It's just that LaMelo and LaMelo can hit catch and shoot threes. It isn't mm-hmm. that. It's just I don't see I don't see them as guys who've always played in, with the ball in their hands so much. Um I don't see the two-way value coming along. But maybe that's me not being creative enough. I mean, that's sure. there's so much talent between the two of them. I'm not going to say it would never work. I just would rather They would probably both have to do things that they're not usually accustomed to doing. And right. then it's like you have to have that conversation. It's like, well, well, I've been here in LaMelo's case, like I'm a borderline all-star player, if not an all-star level player, like why would I be trying to you know, work around and, and adapt my game to somebody like Scoon, like vice versa. Like yeah, that's, that's I, a tough conversation it, to have with young stars. There's a million hoops you'd have to go through. Right. It'd be like, yeah. And so that's a different one. Yeah. Sure. Orlando. This is an interesting one. Marco mm-hmm. Fultz, Jalen Suggs, Cole Anthony. I don't, I really don't think all three, any three of any of those three guys would stop me from drafting Scoot Henderson. That's just me personally. You may, you may sit somewhere else. I, I feel like Scoot is that, special of a prospect and the, his ceiling to me is higher than any of those three ceilings in, in front of him. The, certainly the, my concern with um, that team would not be those guards. It would be his taking the fit. ball out of Paolo and Franz's hands. Correct. To an extent. I think that, that that team, I don't know. My issue with the magic is that I think they should put the ball in Paolo's hands more and more and more. Um, cause that's how I think you get the best version of Paolo and you use Paolo, you identify Paolo as the lead ish initiator and you surround him with like two way versatile talent. Okay. So, and it's not that Scoot won't be able to play defense, but he will have some defensive assignments he can take and some that he can't. And I would rather maximize the players who can take the most defensive assignments around Paolo because I think that's what he forces you to do. But like, it, would I, in a certain circumstance, just not take Scoot whatsoever? Like, no. I again, it's not. It's not like a bad decision. Um, it's just going to require more tinkering down the road. That's all. Portland. Damian Lillard, Anthony Simons. That's that's the the biggest one to me. Where like you're probably not looking the way of Scoot if you get the number two pick. Like that's yeah. probably like Damian Lillard. He's here. He's probably not leaving. You're not. You don't want to trade him. He doesn't want to be traded. You want to maximize his time. They kind of have a whole like the three four position. Like if they want to talk themselves in Brandon Miller, I'm not going to slight them on, on that one. That's the one where I'm like, okay, may, maybe you do go the way of Brandon Miller at number two. Yeah, and I think that's totally right. And that's why, I, you know, that's why I don't think it's clear cut. But yes, I I agree with that. But then Indiana, I think him and Halliburton would actually be really freaking fun together. That would be that would be a really fun one. You can play Mather into the three. You can swap out minutes with Nemhard as like a backup. And he's even proven he can guard up in position defensively this season. They played him at like the three on defense. Like that's a team I, I think him and Halliburton working off of each other. They'd keep the ball moving. Halliburton certainly can shoot and play off of it. Halliburton can play off of anybody. He can play with anybody. Um, that's a team I actually think some people would argue they already have enough guards. I think Scoot would actually help accentuate that offense because he can play the style that they want to play. They want to keep the ball moving. They want to play with a high assist rate. They want to play in pace. Like Those are all things that Scoot can do, and I think he would just fit along there pretty well. Yeah, I think he could fit their style of play. Mm-hmm. But my concern would be where does the team 
how does the team elevate? That's because sure. you're going to need someone to guard wings on that team. Um, like Miles Turner, I think is close enough to that all defense conversation to where you can say, all right, we got, we got one, but he's a, you know, he's a rim protector. He might play and switch here and there, but he's to cover the rim. You need someone who's going to be able to take those assignments on, you know, the best wings in the league. And Matherin is not going to do it because he's not tall enough. Halliburton, not going to do it. And I don't think Scoot would be able to do it either. So not saying it would never work, but again, it narrows to what you're going to need to target. That's, that's again, it, it just forces, it clarifies decisions down the road. A lot of teams like to take wings because they, they have sort of the illusion of a lot of versatility. Mm-hmm. But again, wings are just players who play other wings and, and lose sometimes. So it's not that a wing is necessarily more versatile. But if you think that Brandon Miller can hold up defensively, yeah, then, I, then it would make more sense to me. But and you then, just have to be sure about Brandon's defense. And that's okay. That's a conversation we can have. And then Washington, New Orleans, Utah, Toronto. I mean, CJ McCollum, notwithstanding on, on New Orleans, like I think all of those teams could certainly benefit from the addition of, of Scoot Henderson. So, yeah, I would agree with that, certainly. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. I, I think that just the you, you did an eloquent job at articulating what makes Scoot so special as a prospect in a number of different areas. And we didn't get to every single little thing that's with Scoot Henderson's game. And I think the point is he's an incredible prospect. And the only point that I really wanted to get across is I I don't think there's too many situations in which you would necessarily say no to Scoot, or at least not as many as it's been perpetuated online is is Mm -hmm. I think the point that I would just want to get across. So you and I are in a very good place with Scoot Henderson and it's okay that we spent the most time on him because he's, the projected number two or number three pick in the draft, right? So that that's okay. Of All course. right. These four names get fascinating. And I, yeah, I, I really want to know your thoughts on, on all of these guys. You said that you have questions about all of them. I believe the next in the order that we talked about would be Cason Wallace out of Kentucky, who's been, I think, a consensus lottery guard. This mm-hmm. entire process, I think a lot of people have had him there. 11.6 points per game, three and a half rebounds, 4.2 assists. Two point uh, two steals and two turnovers, forty four percent from the field, thirty five percent from three, seventy six from the line. Kaysen's interesting because he's and and I I hate that we use the word safe Chuck. I've been trying to like workshop another word that we can use effectively, like other than that, because I feel like in some ways it just doesn't do the conversation we want to have when using that word justice. But nevertheless, he feels like one of these quote unquote safe guys where. He is dependable to a certain extent on offense. He's dependable to an extent on defense. And out of all these other guys that we can put in this late lottery conversation where we might have more questions about them than we might about Kaysen, just feels like one of these guys where if you take him, you kind of have a good idea of the value you're going to be getting for that pick. And I think that's more so what propels the conversation forward in Kaysen's favor more than some of the other characteristics about his game. Because when you dive into some parts of his game and you watch the tape back, Chuck, I don't know about you. I I come away less enthused than I probably would want to be. And I'm curious where you sit on that spectrum with Casey Wallace. Yeah. Uh, he's a second half of the lotto guy for me. So okay. somewhere between eight and 14, I don't know where he'll exactly land, but the, I mean, the, 
the safeness that you're referencing is just because he has clear value on both sides of the ball. Mm-hmm. So as long as you have that, then you, there will be a place for you. But there's a difference between having a place and like winning your minutes. Yeah. And I think that uh, Kaysen is well suited to like be on that path. Mm-hmm. But if you look at so if you compare him, this is going to be a weird comparison, but if you compare him to sort of guards who are now, who either came into the league as seniors after their senior year, like um, Alvarado or uh, Alex Caruso or Nemhard to a certain extent, or players who are sort of that age now, like Emmanuel quickly, most notably, he's like, I don't know, 23. So, uh, those players are ones that I have undervalued, you know, okay. coming in those in whatever respective draft cycle since 2020, uh, because I did not appreciate how players who can run, pick and roll, hit threes off the dribble and communicate defensively, stay attached to the point of attack, how regularly those players could win their minutes. Mm-hmm. And with Kaysen, I think that he's it's weird because he's sort of like a freshman version who has all the tools to do that sort of thing. But if I were to say, I think, you know, if I were to ask you, do you think Case and Wallace will have a better career, you know, than Emmanuel quickly, it might seem like I'm insulting Kaysen because quickly went 25th, but Emmanuel quickly is, is awesome. Yeah, he's good. Yep. And he's about to get, you know, at least like 18 million a year. So if they're like, if if that's what Case and Wallace gets on his second contract, eighteen million a year, the team that took him eleventh is not going to be sweating that pick. That's going to be a a very good selection. And and I I'm afraid to be too low on him. To mm-hmm. to be perfectly honest with you, because he he to me strikes me as one of the most skilled one through three players that we have in this class, in this entire Mm -hmm. class, there's very little that I haven't seen him be able to do from all three levels offensively, from guarding multiple positions, from playing different areas of the floor defensively from rebounded. Like there, there's very little, I I truly don't think he can't do on the court. I just, I just don't feel his impact. I feel like in, in the way that I should, when I watch one of his games, in other words, I think he has all the tools I just don't know how well to, to use one of your terms. He weaponizes those tools for the entire course of a game. I feel like a, too many times when I watch him, Chuck, and maybe you'll speak on this better than I can, but it it's really feels like his impact is boomer bust. Like you either come away like, man, Kaysen was the best player on the floor, or there are games where you watch and it's like, was he out there? Like, was, was he doing anything? Like I, I watched them in person in that Kentucky UCLA game of the garden it really didn't feel like he was out there at all. And you look at the stat line, it's like, well, he actually didn't have a, too bad of a game by the numbers, but I'm watching like it's, I'm not coming away with him. Like, yeah, he was one of the three players who impressed me in this game, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Yeah. The the reason what I attribute that to is two things. Number one, he has Oscar Shibway on his team and <laughs> Kentucky plays through him. I mean, it matters. It, it, like, it, it with does. Kentucky, yeah. With Kentucky guards, it is consistently mattered with the stuff that they run or the stuff they yep. don't run. But more importantly than that, um, I don't think Kaysen has a great handle. 
I don't think that he for has sure. a great feel for his handle on how to set guys up. I think his dribble can get high. Um, and I think that he doesn't have that sort of preternatural sense of how to string his moves together, gather and finish that Scoot does. Mm -hmm. And so when he plays a team that is going to have a big in the paint because Kashibwe is there, you know, who can really protect the rim and deter layups, um, Kaysen doesn't create great finishing angles for himself. Is that and why if, I feel like everything he does seems much harder than it should be? I th that's, that's exactly the reason. That that's my impression of it. And if he has a great, he has an on-ball hound like Jalen Clark on him that's really going to get under anybody's handle, then it's going to be you know going to be a long day. And that's why, like in the NBA, because of the increased space, handles tend to improve for very athletic players as long as they can keep a defense honest enough. And Kaysen can with his shot. But that still is going to take time. You know, Benedict Matherin was a player who had a questionable handle coming into the league, and he's hit already in terms of what he does really well. Kaysen's not that level of an athlete, but he is good enough to where, again, I can see him settling into a guard role where, he closes in like crunch time. Maybe he's not a full-time starter all of the time, sure. but he's good enough on both ends to eventually close. I don't think that's coming in his first two seasons. I think you'd, you'd have to wait till year three to really see if that's going to hit. And that takes a lot of patience too. I, I think, you know, the, the not only first year players, but, like 19, 20 year olds who are not taken in the top five, they, they just, they very rarely hit right away. And you're just going to have to, you're just going to have to wait it out and have patience. The thing about Kaysen that complicates that is that if I tell you that he could eventually be in a, like a quickly ish and they're, they don't have the same games. I'm just bringing that up as sure. like a player. Yeah, the impact level. Yeah. Right. If I tell you it's going to have a quickly-ish impact, a lot of teams don't want to wait around for a quickly-ish impact. Someone who is going to be in the sixth man of the year running by year yep. like three or four. That's an awesome player, but a lot of teams would be like, well, let's just trade the pick for a wing X and try to win in the next two or three seasons. And that's and for some teams, that's the appropriate calculus, and I, I get it, and that's why... You know, I think he's a where he is on my board, but the fact that the the value path to me is very clear for him is why I consider him, you know, safe. Do do are you before we move to the next guy? Are you, how in love are you with his defense? Because I actually, when I watched some of the tape back today and I looked at some of the numbers, I, I'm I'm less enthused about the defense than I was coming in and I, my main reason for that is he doesn't play big to me on defense he seems like someone who's who's more locked in to defending certain positions than I initially thought I don't think he scales up well on that end of the floor and I think you can score over him and through him easier than I thought or at least in terms of what his reputation would indicate I don't know where you're at on his defense interesting That's just my impression like in when you say over and through him, do you mean like in the post or on the ball? Like what wings on the ball do you think have given him trouble this year? 
I've watched multiple games where it just seems like he's not playing up on the ball enough to the point where he's not he's not contesting the types of shots that he should be, and guys mm-hmm. are just nailing jumpers over him really easily. Or somebody's getting him on the dribble, and he's kind of by the basket, and somebody gets a step on him, and he's not strong enough to kind of be like, no, you're not going to do that. And it's like, yeah, the guy gets a layup around the basket. like th- Things like that where it's like, you you I would expect different results than opponents shooting a consistent 42% against them on the year. Whereas another guard who we're not talking about, but a guy like Keontae George, you can see the physicality in his defense. You can appreciate the way that he goes about it. And the numbers bear out the results because opponents are shooting 28.8% against him on defense. And that's just like, I'm not saying Kaysen's a bad defender by any means. His instincts, his timing, the way that he approaches getting blocks and playing passing lanes to force turnovers, like that's all great stuff. I mean, on the ball, he doesn't defend as big as I think I'd want him to. Interesting. <clears throat> Interesting. I haven't – that has not stuck out to me. Sure. It's not that I saw him as like – a complete menace or anything like that, but that has not stuck out to me. That doesn't that, and you may well be right. It didn't stick I, out to me either until I quite literally sat down and was like, I'm going to queue up X amount of possessions mm-hmm. on this defense and see like what's going on here. Yeah. I think that, uh, look, defense obviously is crucially important in the league and it's important to evaluate for prospects. But the reality is that for, 90 plus percent of players easily, you know, their primary ticket to minutes, to contracts, to success in the league comes through their offense. Cause the second you're an offensive liability, you get ignored and you get replaced. Yep. So like, it's funny. I mean, it's funny in retrospect that we did this. I did this too. But when everyone was like, oh yeah, Jalen Suggs, he'll just be like Drew Holiday. As if that's so, as if that's, you just pencil it in. Oh, Drew Holiday's a great defender. Jalen Suggs is a very promising guard defender. So it's just a one-to-one. But Drew Holiday, as we are seeing increasingly, is like a, you know, once in every 10 years guard defender. Sure. So I think that though, Kaysen obviously has defensive skills. He is going to be in the easy 90 plus percent who's going to be more offensively tilted than it seems. His ticket is going to revolve around his jumper and around his handle improving and, you know, to see where that eventually lands him. And I think that again, safely makes him part of a guard rotation will eventually be a positive part. But if a team doesn't want to wait that out, because I think of him as more of a second contract guy than a first. Sure. Then that's fine. And if that if that makes you value him at pick 20 in a weirdo draft like this, then okay. I just I think that when it's all said and done, those two-way the at least the pathway to two-way value is more valuable than pick 20. I think it usually lands, you know, 10, 11, 12 around there. I agree with you and that's why I have him in a very similar range on my board. We will be right back and we will discuss the last three names that we're talking about on this podcast episode. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need a fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. 
Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. And we're back. Okay, so, Chuck, you have three more names for me, my good man. All fascinate me as much as the first two. This one... I'd be, I actually am more surprised if you do have legitimate questions about him because this, I, I know you, Chuck. I know the types of players that you love talking about and value. Mm-hmm. Anthony Black seems like one of those guys that's just right up your alleyway because he's a six foot seven point guard who initiates offense, can play within multiple different constructs. If he's shooting the ball, that's great. Defensively, he can guard multiple positions. He rebounds well for his position because of his size and, and his length. Like, this just seems like in a guy for a guy who valued Josh Giddy so much when mm-hmm. he was coming out. And by the way, you've been proven very correct about valuing him so highly. Anthony Black seems like the per- <laughs> seems like the perfect type of prospect that you would want to discuss. So why why do you want to talk about Anthony Black tonight? Because I'm not sure about him. Oh boy, that's why. Oh boy, All that's right, let's do it. he again in a draft a very confusing draft he really confuses me and i want i you're exactly right i want to just be like he's six seven he's young he just turned 19 in january um and he can legitimately distribute the ball has enough defensive value to where he's going to get minutes done like let's just let's go he's a top 10 pick that's those players don't again don't ever fail um my issue with him and it goes back to what we were just talking about with Kaysen is that though he can be a like a wonderful off ball defender I think he can be a a good good to very good defender um on guard on like players smaller than him guarding guards but he does not strike me as like a a good enough athlete, a strong enough athlete. His body will fill out a little more, but he just he doesn't strike me as quite explosive and strong enough to where he'll be like that all defense level of defensive player. Like you're talking, to, like, you're talking like east west versus north south. Um, I'm talking like absorbing contact okay. and uh being sort of a predatory on-ball guy against really good NBA players with true NBA level burst. And and, like, I think he can try, he can stay in front in ISO. That's great. But if he, is he going to regularly get around? I don't know. I I, I don't want to use the most extreme example, but let's say like a very professional screen setter, like Al Horford is Anthony black going to like regularly get around Al Horford's, screens because he's so springy off his feet i don't know and all that means is like wallace his value is going to come primarily from his offense because i don't consider himself i don't consider him a special enough defender to where his value comes primarily from his defense yep so that means that my focus has to go to his offensive game more than his defensive game and how to value him giddy at the same age that black was now was getting triple doubles in a professional league. So it's, I can see the difference there because though black has games where he fills up the box score, like again, he's 
a very productive freshman at Arkansas. He has I, games like Kaysen where you do not, you just don't feel his impact in the same way. Right. Yeah. And I think one of the primary differences between he and Giddy is Giddy was a legit like six eight six nine like skinny but broad shouldered kid who was again absorbing contact and going to that spin move in the lane and getting to floaters like he was creating looks that he was confident in. With Black, I see that he's so wiggly and that's really cool. And it's again he's not going to fail, but I. I just can't right now envision the easy looks he's going to create for himself unless he's cutting. And that's great. He will be a very good cutter and he'll find some value there and he'll carve out a role there. But if he's, if defenses can ignore you, you know, so you don't buy his first step when he has the ball in his hands. Cause that to me has been a selling point of the college film is like when he, he, he just seems to be one of these guys. Like I question, because of the lack of a jump shot right now and how he hasn't been efficient in that area, you know, defenses are going to defenses at the NBA know how to play those guys and shut off some of the angles that, that you can take. If, if they're going to be able to play off of him in a way that he can't get the same mm-hmm. angles yet, when I see him in those situations in college, and maybe that's just because he's going up against college defenders, not NBA defenders, seems like he's always still getting to the spots that he wants to get to at the end of the day. And yeah that's that's kind of like the main selling point to me is that even though he's not going to be an isolation type score like if you get him on an island there's not too much he can do without the jump shot right that that's mm-hmm. just case in point that's by the numbers he rates in the seventh percentile in terms of isolation scoring like i think that's going to bear out very well in the nba but from a first step perspective he just seems like he knows how to get around guys he's strong enough to where guys aren't necessarily pushing him off of his spots and he is one of these guys who he can hit anybody off a live dribble pass and he can drop the dime wherever he needs to yes. go. And he can be a, a redirector and orchestrator. So that, that to me gives him greater value than even if go, go ahead. You want to comment on that? No, I, I think the first step is not as much the concern to me. It's again, looping back to scoot. My concern with Anthony is his last step. That's the okay. that's the bigger problem because I think when he gets to his last and maybe he experiences an athletic jump and it really comes along, but when he gets to his last step, I don't unless he has already created a great angle for himself, he uh, can't really elevate over people off agree. one foot on that last step very often. That's why I think he finds himself driving to pass not only because he can do it, but because he kind of has to do it when he's in clogged paints. And uh, I don't see him, like, even though he's willing to accept contact, he tries to draw contact. A lot of the times it kind of looks like he's jumping or throwing himself into guys to get that contact. And the whistle won't be as friendly in the NBA if he's not a star. I don't think he's going to be a star. I think if you compare him to Dyson Daniels, a player with some similarities to him, some, um, Dyson, great feel for the game, both ends. I think a better, stronger athlete overall than Anthony and a more gifted defensive prospect than him. I think he has better touch. I think Anthony is a more creative player overall. Um, but I don't know that. And I think he's more of like a willing shooter than Dyson was probably at the mm-hmm. same time. 
but I don't know that that's enough for me to prefer black to Dyson overall. And I look at Dyson and it's just, I really like him, but it's going to take time. I think Dyson as gifted as he is defensively is going to be more of like, he's going to have more value on his second contract than his first. And that's just, I also also think Dyson has a higher ceiling than Anthony black. You and I would agree on that. Um, But look at how, like if he, so many people are optimistic on Dyson, I think with justification, but like the Pelicans are in free fall and can't rely on Dyson because he's just young and it's just going to take time. So that's what, that's what I'm saying. It's going to take a lot of time and, what the second contract version of Anthony Black looks like is just fuzzy to me. It's fuzzy for me to see how the offense works with him off of the ball. Cause I don't think he's going to be good enough to be like on the ball a ton, unless he's next to another lead initiator and they're like splitting reps. That's well, all. so to, to kind of put a bow on it, I, I, I've come around to like Anthony Black more than I did about a month ago. I would have Anthony Black in the back end of the top 10 conversation. So like late, late lottery range as well with, with Kaysen. But I think coming into the season, Chuck, a lot of people thought that Anthony Black had the the, the background and what he was going to be able to do. He, he'd start to develop and blossom into the next like Tyrese Halliburton type prospect. And mm-hmm. I always had reservations about that because what's made Halliburton so special is that He's developed go-to scoring moves in a way that I did not expect him to grow into, right? Like he, he has one of those legitimate, like when he goes to that step back to his right, it's become like an unguardable shot from three point range. And it's, it's pretty, it's pretty awesome to see him get those types of moves in his bag to elevate him to, Oh, he can be this very high usage. I can command the ball in all these different situations. Everything's going to run through me. I do not think that Anthony Black has that type of offensive ceiling, which is why I've been very hesitant to those who want to have him in like a top seven range. I think he's going to be a good player. I, I don't think he's going to fail. But to your point, the, those are the types of guys you can take in that late lottery range because it's better to find a guy who's going to work in the NBA and make it to that second contract than taking a chance on somebody who may not reach mm-hmm. that point. But when you get into that upper level of the lottery, there needs to be something more there. And and I don't see that necessarily with him. And I think you and I are probably on the same page with that. Yeah, it, we are. It's just, if he, if, if it is as fuzzy as I think it is, and Anthony Black doesn't end up returning top 10 value in the class, it will really be the first counter example to this six, seven archetype who can distribute and everything. Um, I like, I guess you could maybe argue Dalen Terry is sort of a reduced version of that. Uh, but it's just interesting. Just be a very interesting case for evaluations going forward to me. Anthony Black's Arkansas teammate, Nick Smith. You mm-hmm. also wanted to talk about Nick Smith. I gotta be honest, Chuck. I am not a Nick Smith guy. And it's Ooh. funny because I wrote about him in, in such a glowing way for no ceilings a, a few months ago when, when we thought that his season could have very well been over. I was like, okay, let me take the opportunity to write a piece called the future of Nick Smith. Let's talk about if this is all the film that we have, you know, the, the high school stuff. And then what he did in, in a few games, like literally we're talking about like three games where he actually played meaningful. Minutes, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right. So it's like, if this is all we have, how can we project Nick Smith for? And I came away watching those three games. I was feeling 
I was feeling a little optimistic, but then I, I took another look, and then we have more film now since he's come back here in February. <sighs> I'm struggling, man. I'm struggling. And I dropped him out of – this was – we were creating rankings for a composite board like a week and a half ago. And before a lot of people updated their big boards and their mock drafts coming into the tournament, I had dropped him out of my lottery, and I moved mm-hmm. him to, to like 16. And now mm-hmm. I feel like everyone but Gavoni has kind of done like the same thing. So I, I'm, I'm assuming that's because everyone is seeing a lot of the same concerns that I have, and I won't coin any of those concerns as, as being mine and mine alone because a lot of those concerns that I now see more clearly – they were things that Corey on our team also brought up preseason things going back to the high school film. And so I'm very curious at where you're at on, on Nick Smith, because I'm not saying he has a low ceiling Chuck. I'm saying in order for him to return the type of value that he was once projected to have as a top six pick in this draft, he would have to be one of these very nuclear offensive guards to where you're putting him in the conversation of like a Bradley Beal or like that's, that's the tier level of guard that you're putting him in. And I think the reality of him actually reaching that ceiling isn't quite the same as some would have projected at the beginning of the year. And I'm having trouble envisioning that, given some of the concerns that I have. So what are the concerns that you have? Or maybe you don't have as many concerns. Maybe you are still like, yeah, I'm in on the Nick Smith experience. Where are you at with Nick Smith? Um, Back and forth. Another guy who confuses me. Okay. I think... On the one hand, I don't want to overthink being able to put up 20 points like pretty regularly Very fair. Um, at 18 years old in the SEC. I don't want to overthink that. Um, I think that Nick, you know, you mentioned Halliburton. I'm not going to recall Nick Smith, the Tyrese Halliburton type of prospect, but one of my concerns with Halliburton is he didn't get to the rim in college off the bounce regularly at all. Mm-hmm. And Nick oscillates between being on the ball and off the ball. Cause Anthony black kind of needs the ball yep. with Arkansas. And so uh, he has, and because Nick missed so much time, he's had to like, really be malleable in a, in a short amount of time. Uh, but I think if he, first of all, I think his feel for the game is high. I think okay. he reads um, passing lanes and actions on both sides of the ball well and anticipates well. I think he cuts well. Um, and I think he's the type of player who is going to play well off of other NBA players. You know, that Arkansas roster is very funky, very strange. And it's something to keep in mind with with Black as well. But Limited spacing. We've talked about that with multiple college teams now. Right. But I think if you're right that he's going to need to be a nuclear offensive talent, I agree with that. The question is just like, if I were to ask you, um, who is a more talented shooter of the ball, Keontae George or, or Nick Smith, who would you say? Would you say George? I actually would say George. And the reason why I would say George, I actually buy his movement shooting ability more than I do Nick Smith. Mm-hmm. And I actually thought it was going to be the other way around. I thought Nick Smith was going to be the very easy answer to that question. It was it was an answer that I thought I had arrived at in my piece when I wrote it for No Ceilings, but the results 
And then looking back on why the results are what they are, they aren't nearly as appealing to me as they were about a month and a half ago. Like the percentages on some of those types of shots, he he's not hitting them. And in a way that Keontae George, for, for all that we can nitpick Keontae's on-ball scoring and the types of shots that he takes when he actually is seemingly needing to be involved in a more off-ball role, yeah. he is hitting those shots. Yeah. I, I think that right now he is a better off-ball shooter than Nick because he, in part because, I mean, George has really, really good footwork. But he also has a lot more core strength. He's just yes, more he does. built that out. That balance is legit. Yep. Yeah. And uh, Nick's skinny. And that is, you know, maybe I'm underthinking this or overthinking this or whatever. I don't, I don't know. But to me. No, it comes back to the body. I think all of these concerns we have come back to the body. But that's the point. If he is a year, six months to a year younger than college freshmen normally are and he's playing in the sec and his body's underdeveloped and he's missed all this time and his roster construction's weird. And he has another guy who needs to be ball dominant. Um, then to me, it's just kind of all the more impressive that he's put up 20 plus in like half his games. And I think it just sort of speaks to how he anticipates and reads the game and guys who can shoot, and read the game really well. I also think he's a very good connecting passer. And guys who do that, there tend to be a spot for. Now, how much value he returns from his spot is going to be the question, because how well is he going to hold up over at point of attack? Being skinny means that you can get skinny around some screens, but you need to be strong enough to like, and balanced enough to hold up over all that stuff. I think all of that is still like to be determined with him. But I see him, if I'm, I think Keontae is the better off-ball shooter. There also is not like a ton of six foot three off-ball shooters who make their money doing that primarily. But for Nick, who's longer and taller, I think that I project his off-the-bounds game to be slipperier and a, a bit just more lethal. And I think that his uh, shooting off the dribble could be like right there with him. And so if I, if you were to ask me who is more likely to average 20 in the league, I would say Nick Smith. And that, and when I look at his play, that player that he is now, and I project him to again, a second contract to where now he's sort of in his athletic prime and he can create some advantages a bit more easily I, I I like that player. I like a high field guy who can uh, use his smarts to get to spots on the floor that other people need nuclear athleticism to get to, who is a threat to hit shots from just about anywhere on the floor. So does it again, concern you though, that he's very perimeter based and that it's, yeah, it does. Yeah. It's not just that he doesn't get to the rim. It's when he gets there and to your, well, we had the conversation earlier about, you know, taking different angles to avoid contact, right? Like that's been a part of Nick Smith's game that has been baked into him since high school. And I didn't want to buy that when, when Corey initially brought that up to me, but I did look back at the, at some of the tape and I look at the numbers and like that is baked into his core and that I don't buy the finishing ability around the basket to really be a boon for him at all at the NBA level. 
he has the floater game that he gets to, that he likes Mm -hmm. to get to. He takes a much higher percentage of his shots as floaters or runners than shots at the rim. It has to be elite for him. Otherwise, if you're if you're just essentially eliminating him as an as a threat in the paint altogether, then it, it really becomes murky for him. And I've with to Keontae's credit, because of his build, because of his willingness to hunt contact, because of his willingness to get to the basket, that's a that's a part of his game that's much safer to project and easier to project for me. And why mm-hmm. I would I may very well lean Keontae over Nick Smith and why I do by one spot, by the way, it's just one spot on my board. <laughs> I, I lean Keontae over Nick, but that that's why like that stuff concerns me so much when, when yeah. we talk about succeeding in the NBA's guard. Yeah. I, I, I I'm not going to have like a great rebuttal to that. I think that if you want to, again, if you want to have Nick Smith, you want to have him lower, you want to have him 19th in this draft, then I will, understand where you are coming from. I think that is the nature of this draft, Mm -hmm. but I also like, yes, there is a cliche now that so many players in the NBA can average 20, like Malik Beasley, given the right context can average 20, but you know, if he like, if Nick has a Malik Beasley ish kind of career, but he let's say um, adds a bit more connective playmaking off of it that's the key to me is the passing if the if the passing keeps going like up and up and up and up and up for him that's what's going to separate him from some of these other guards who look at like yeah they can average 18 to 20 a game potentially in the right situation but they're doing it primarily from shooting the ball and then when you get outside of the scoring you're not feeling the same level of impact offensively if he is that connective tissue if he is that playmaker who develops and, and becomes a better pick and roll guy that's what really blossoms and, and accentuates his game forward. Yeah. And I, I think the last three guys we've talked about are like, I would really hesitate to project them as long-term starters. I would, but I, mm-hmm. as, as members of a guard rotation who can return real tangible value, I think they all have potential merit. You just have to understand that that is, it's going to take time because the guards the sort of spot starterish guards who return real value and affect winning generally don't do it until they're 23, 24, 25 years old. I mean, that's, it's just reality in the league. If you look up and down, that's, you have to be that old and be able to sort of withstand that physical punishment from players bigger than you in order to do it. The, when, when I did, when I did my study and I did that piece that I wrote for no ceilings about finding balance and really taking a look at what it means to play 20 minutes a night in the NBA, the average age of those players was 26 to yeah. your very point. So that's just a reality. Sometimes it just takes time as Tyler Rucker would like to say, we're going to take one more quick break and then we're going to come back and talk about the last player that Chuck brought up in the guard conversation. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. And we're back. All right. So last guy, Chuck. Man, the floor needs to be all yours because this guy 
Last cycle, I admittedly had not watched a lot of Xavier basketball before you brought up this name, Colby Jones. You were the first person who brought him to, to my attention on a podcast that you did. And oh boy, has he blossomed into quite the NBA draft prospect, even since you really brought him into mm-hmm. the spotlight to an extent. Colby Jones, the six foot five guard out of Xavier, 15 points per game, 5.4 rebounds, 4.3 assists, 52% from the field. 38 from three, 20.4 PER, 59 true shooting percentage, seven and a half box plus minus 81st in terms of total offense per synergy, 56th in terms of total defense. This guy, Chuck, is a, a jack of all trades. He mm-hmm. may he may be the master of none, but <laughs> the, the, the more that we study the types of players that actually succeed in the NBA, the more we come back to being more skilled than than falling on the specialist spectrum unless you are like an absolutely like freakish shooter tends to be better in terms of predicting your overall nba success and whether you're going to make it to multiple contracts and colby jones that swiss army knife the guy who's built to play in the nba whose skill set matches what everyone's looking for in multi-positional players in the nba that's the type of guy he is and why He's more likely than some may care to believe to return top 20 value, which is why we in those ceilings have certainly jumped on the bandwagon and we have decided to value him. So, so are you still as sold as you were last season on Colby Jones's NBA prospects? Oh, top 20 value, top 15 value, yeah. top 10 value. <laughs> Look, I, I, I don't have, I, I, I can't go all the way all the way there. I don't really, I don't, I don't have the darts to do it right now, but, but it's, it's, it's March. This is March. John Rothstein every day of his life. Right. But by draft time, I might be there. I mean, again, to what we've been saying, I, I black Wallace Smith, it's gonna, it's gonna take time until they're older. And the person who is physically ready to play in the NBA right now is Colby Jones. And that, again, is sort of counterintuitive to traditional draft thought. It's like, well, older players who take longer to reach the NBA, you know, have lower ceilings, bust more often, you know, whatever. And at a certain level, that is true. But there is a a flip side to the coin, you know, that <laughs> players who are really good who are that age can come in and help. I mean, I don't want to get into a Jalen Williams tangent right now, but Jalen well, Williams, friend of the program, you can always talk about Jalen Williams. I know. So. Well, I mean, he, he, if, if he keeps playing the way he's playing right By now, the way, for, he's, he, he's my rookie of the year. I, I've that's what I, that's what I'm saying. If yep. he keeps playing the way he's playing through the end of the year, he should be the rookie of the year. Yep. Colby is not, the prospect that Jalen Williams was in retrospect. Sure. So I'm not, I'm not doing that, but what he is, is physically ready to play in the NBA with a history of defensive production, being able to guard up what you're saying yeah. because of how One well he's three. built. Yep. He's a, you know, he's a block of granite who can move laterally. Um, and he has really, really good touch. Like, mm-hmm. I think that, you can look at his threes and see the the low ish volume and have a concern about that. And it's valid. And he doesn't rise up and dunk over a bunch of people all the time. 
and I think that's valid too. But, but as 80, a 84th percentile on all jumpers, 94th rated out catch and shoot, 93rd percentile on runners, which would be what you're looking for as far as the touch, and then 76th percentile at the rim. Yes. Yeah. All three yeah. levels. He's he has shot last year, he shot 55% from two which like as a perimeter player is just awesome. Like it's just really good. This year he is shooting just about 58% from two. And like it's, and Xavier's offense, though it can, they can find some good spacing in that offense. It also is not like, and maybe I've watched the wrong Xavier games, but the games that I've watched of them, they've been sort of a, um, one pass away offense where all of their passes tend to be pretty safe. Mm -hmm. The one pass ahead sort of passes that don't really warp a defense. So I think more often than not, Colby is working like with someone on him Mm -hmm. and it doesn't seem to really affect him. Like he, when he just puts the ball in the bucket and because he has like these, what did he have the game where he was like nine of 10 for 29 points? Cause he got to the line so much recently he rebounds, he assists, he's going to be able to connect and you're not going to have to wait around for him. So if that's a, if that's a two way guy who can score efficiently at the NBA level pretty quickly, and he's going to be able to guard up, then I am tempted, again, I don't have the gumption to do it right now, but I'm tempted to say that I see him more as a starter than anyone else we've discussed except for Scoot. So there are a few guys in this class who I think can not only get downhill much easier than I thought he could, Chuck, he, he goes either direction and finishes just as well. And that really surprised me. And that that stuck that struck out to me that game. I, I forget the opponent. I forget who they played, but I remember the game that you're talking about because I watched it live. It was like a two o'clock game in the afternoon and I had it on. I remember watching that game and I was like, how easily he gets downhill. I, I didn't realize that was legitimately part of his game. And I think that's going to translate in the NBA because of the, the ambidexterity. I, I, I actually love that about his game. And I'm assuming you, you kind of noticed the same thing in relation to his finishing. And mm-hmm. it's not something that we talk about enough with some players who are, you know, either one side of the floor, or other side of the floor dominant, like that, that's, that's the angle they're going to attack every single time. Colby can attack multiple angles off the bounce and it doesn't seem to phase him whether he has to give it up or he's getting all the way to the basket, drawing the contact or finishing at the rim. Yeah. And I think that his ability to handle contact as well, like yep. we were t- we've been talking about it with balance. Um, when you're built the way that, that Colby is, he's going to be able to take a bump or initiate a bump and still be able to re- rely on his touch to finish shots. Um, I, I think it's, you know, I've done this plenty in my like sort of time evaluating draft prospects. I think it's a fine thing to look for, but you really like people like to look for nuclear vertical athletes with good reason. Sure. But at some point, like Colby is not a nuclear vertical athlete. He's not nothing. I mean, he's, he's averaged like, I guess 13 or 14 dunks the last two years, which is not, not bad, but not amazing. He gets up off two feet. He's not like this incredible one foot leaper. That's like, yeah, I'm going to. And, and, and right. And most of his finishes are below the rim as well. Yeah. But, 
the, it, the ball just goes in. So if most of his defense is going to be the ability to stay attached, get over screens, be physical without fouling and having really good hands and reading plays as a team defender, you don't need to be an insane vertical athlete to do that. If his offensive game is going to be, you know, hitting catch and shoots and attacking closeouts and being able to finish all of his finishing numbers indicate that he's going to be able to do that too. So again, I just, apart from him, not looking the way that one and done like super athletic uh, top 10 picks look apart from the fact that he doesn't look aesthetically like that. I don't know what keeps him from returning that level of value, at least not right now. That's that that's been my struggle with him is everyone's like, oh, yeah, he's he's the most NBA ready player in the class. Twenty fifth. I'm just like, what are you talking about? If he if you really believe that about him, if he's the most let's just limit it to upperclassmen with all due respect to Chris Murray. If he is the most NBA ready upperclassman in the draft, you're going to put him in the 20s. That's an NBA ready player is an NBA ready player. Mm-hmm. You like that that to me is where again I think that you can lose the forest for the trees a little bit. I I think that comes back to the age thing and I think a lot of people haven't talked themselves out of the 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 concept of age. So I understand when you have when you have a freshman who's 18 compared to a freshman who's 20 that in theory they have two more years of development to reach a certain point somebody is at 20 and you would expect to be in a much more advantageous position to sign them you know at a younger age the, the second contract potentially the third contract yada yada like they actually reach their full ceiling and, and potential right like I, I understand that argument for age being a factor in, in, in that direction but the league chuck and you know this better than me because you watch more nba basketball than, than i get the chance to because of of what everything we do at no ceilings with the way the league has grown in terms of talent, and it seems like every single roster from, from one all the way down to 15 has legitimate, legitimate guys on it. There are so many jobs already taken to where if you're going to take someone else's job, you better be damn good to be able to take that person's job. Mm-hmm. And some of these 18, 19 year olds, to your point, some of these guys have great promise. They could have really high ceilings, but depending on how quickly they can start to reach that ceiling, they may not be able to take the job that they need to, to get the minutes that they need to play in order to develop into that higher level player. Whereas somebody who is 20, 21, 22, they are more quote unquote NBA ready because their bodies are more developed because some of their skills are more developed. They can get and hop into a more defined role quicker than some of these younger players maybe that's why we're seeing some of these older guys like a Keegan Murray return more value than, than one would think at its face because you wouldn't think about drafting a 22 year old sophomore like a few years ago in reality, you know, Keegan Murray went where he needs to go. And that whole conversation of age, I, I, I think people need to move away from it to, to, to certain degrees. And I don't know if you agree or disagree with that premise to close out the pod. I think age really matters, but you have to, if you're going to take the younger player, then you have to be prepared to be very patient. That's all. Cause the NBA, one of the consequences of the talent wave is that younger guys are not going to come in and like be good. It's just, it's going to take 
them time. And that's yeah, there's if less they, than five of those guys every draft class, and that's why they go right. where they do in the draft. Right. Yeah. So I think like the the discussion is so like for Obi when he came out, he was older prospect, obviously. Um, but the issue with him was less his age, because lots of times age is code for like I'm not athletic enough to be in the NBA. And that wasn't ever the case with Obi. It was yeah. more that he had a real side of the ball. He really had questions on both sides of the ball, but there was sure. a huge defensive question as to yeah. where he would fit. And he hadn't really embraced shooting threes yet, and he wasn't a great free throw shooter. So there was a question as to how easily he would space on the other side. And so, like, Colby, I think, is a much smoother fit on both sides of the ball. He's also a young junior, by the way. I think he turns 21 in May. So he's been 20 this whole year. Yep. So he's younger than you think he is. Um, and though I would prefer him, I would prefer his free throws to be at a percentile level. That's that's greater than 67%. Yeah, correct. Um, I'd prefer that for him. And I'd be more bullish on calling him a lotto pick if it were. But nonetheless, I just, I see him being able to contribute to guard rotations I just, I can just see it. I just get it with him. It just makes sense to me. And so that, that's why this draft is confusing to me is that this junior from Xavier, you know, in with the ideas that there's so much one and done talent in this class, but that is almost always a trap. When you yes. think there are so many one and dones that are just going to come in and like, we're just going to run the league. It, it's just not, it just, it just doesn't happen math doesn't bear it out. So that that's more my thought is that if there's a guy, if there's a guard in this class, that's going to really, really outperform where he's taken. I think it's Colby. Uh, unless you want to talk about Brandon Podchemsky, I'm happy to do that too. But I Colby friend, friend of the no ceilings program as well. That's, correct. Brand, that's Brand right. Podchemsky. But yeah, the, we, we, we will save that pod for, for another day for sure. But Chuck, it is always refreshing and exciting to have you on and be able to have conversations with you. I truly think that you, you are not honestly like you, you are my favorite person in this draft space outside of our wonderful team and no ceilings to, to get to have conversations with on podcasts. Cause I tell people all the time, you, you are a, an excellent evaluator, but you also are not afraid to have different opinions and consensus. And you absolutely stick to your guns in terms of what you believe in. And more often than not, you actually end up being right. And so I, I truly respect the way you go about your process and, and how you go about creating content, your podcast and everything in this space. So I, I will let you plug yourself and I will let you plug your content. But if you aren't listening to Chucking Darts like I am on a, a weekly basis, you're doing yourself a disservice. So thank you for coming on the podcast tonight. Well, thank you very much. I mean, that's very nice of you to say. You and I did enter at the same time about a month apart in that 2020 cycle. Yeah. Um, so it's been fun to, you know, grow alongside one another. I really appreciate it. As far as what people can look forward to, I mean, just follow me on Twitter at Chucking Darts. Whatever I do will come in through there. I am not <laughs> as technologically savvy as the draft deeper conglomerate <laughs> is, but People in the draft deeper conglomerate do shout me out, which is nice. So I'm trying to benefit off of that. But 
Uh, yeah, it, I'm just going to be covering this stuff through the cycle. If I can do some written stuff, some more written stuff, then all the better. There's a piece yes. I'm working on, but it's always hard to find the time. So if it gets done, it gets done. Otherwise, just look out for the pod. Absolutely. So again, follow Chuck on Twitter at Chucking Darts. And thank you all for tuning into the No Ceilings NBA podcast feed. If, if you have not followed us already at No Ceilings NBA on Twitter and subscribe to the Substack at NoCeilingsNBA.com, please go ahead and do so. We're pumping out content Monday through Friday, both pod and written form. Every single day of the week, we're keeping you engaged and locked into the NBA draft and what it means for the NBA world as a whole. Until we meet again on this podcast feed, thank you all for listening. And I hope you all have a wonderful rest of your week.